So one of my favourite things to do is I love to go away camping. I love that feeling, you know, packing the car, hitting the open road, leaving everything behind and going and just, you know, being in nature, surrounded by friends, family, playing cards, going for surfs, you know, sitting on the beach. I just, you know, I love that feeling. For me, you know, that's, that's my idea of what I'd do in my spare time. Some of you might be like, camping, not for me, sorry. Um, that's not my idea of a good time, but that's okay. <laughs> um, tonight we're looking at what is the blessed life? And so when you think of the blessed life, what are some things that come to mind? Is it, um, you know, just a life where I've got a healthy body, I don't have to worry about sickness? Is it a life where I don't have to worry about where I've got enough money to feed my kids, don't have to worry about work? I got friends and family. There was this thing that happened, I don't know, like five years ago now, and um, people would post these photos on Facebook and Instagram, and they'd write like this nice little succinct comment under the photo, and then, you know, they'd write other words and put hashtags in front of them. And I don't know, someone might need to explain it to me because I never really quite got it. My perception was that if it didn't fit nicely in that sentence, you just add what you want to say in hashtags, but I could be wrong. Anyway, it was a weird millennial thing. Um, anyway, this thing that happened five years ago is people would write hashtag blessed under their photos. Um, and so I just wanted to see if this was still a thing. So I did a little search into um, Instagram and typed in hashtag blessed. One of the first photos that came up was this roided up bloke sitting back on some like, I don't know, like a Ferrari or something with hashtag blessed underneath it. And yeah, all the other photos were similar things. It was like people, you know, um, buying stuff, like nice holiday, like flashing their wealth and privilege and saying, hashtag blessed. The Bible's definition on what it means to be blessed is significantly different to what our society thinks it is today. And so Psalm 31 gets that, and we're going to have a look at it tonight. We're going to wrestle with this question what is the blessed life? So let's have a look. Um, verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read it again for you. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit there's no deceit. You want to know the secret to happiness? Secret to the blessed life? The Bible's answer, it's quite surprising given our context. It doesn't say here, blessed is the one that has enough money to get by. It doesn't say, blessed is the one that never has to worry about sickness. It doesn't say, blessed is the person that never faces any hardship. It doesn't even say, blessed is the one that has no sin, which is interesting. Like most people would think, you know, come to the Bible. Yeah, it says, um, you know, blessed is the person that has no sin. But that would actually crush us because we're all sinners. It says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. The blessed life is the life that's been forgiven by sin. You may have this idea of what you think is the blessed life. Maybe you've got you know, a 10-year goal 
or a five-step plan. Maybe you've been carrying a bit of angst inside of you because you quite haven't had that reality yet. I hope that this message here actually brings relief for you because the Bible says the blessed life is the forgiven life. And you don't have to go around trying to earn it either. There's no like five-step goal to the blessed life because God's plan of the blessed life, it actually works a bit differently how we're used to getting things. And that's because forgiveness is never something that we achieve. It's only something that we can be given. And so think about this on a human level. Like your friend, your spouse, family member, you do something out of selfishness to hurt them. And you feel great, like you feel uh, remorse, you're sad. You want to show them that you're sorry. So, you know, you do something to make it up to them. You buy them flowers, you take them out for dinner, do something nice, right? You're trying to make an effort to reconcile that relationship. But no matter how many things you do, you can't achieve forgiveness. It's only the person that can, you've hurt that actually can achieve forgiveness for you. But even though we can't achieve forgiveness by our merits, David's showing us this in this psalm that we can still be recipients of the blessed life. And so this is what we're going to spend our time looking at. How can we be the recipients of God's forgiveness? But the next thing that David goes to, verse 3 and 4 here, it actually comes as a bit of a surprise. Because you'll see, you'll notice that he's actually not experiencing the blessed life. It's the opposite. Have a look, verse 3 and 4, I'll read it for you. It says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped in the heat of summer. Notice the agony of David here. His bones are wasting away. He's groaning all day long. His strength is sapped, like in the heat of summer. I used to work as a groundie for a tree lopper. We used to do those 40-degree days. And you get to the end of the day, and you just be like, I've got nothing. Like, I'm so depleted. I just want to go home and go to bed. But David, David's experience here, it's not one of physical depletion, but it's actually an emotional one. Like, have a look at verse 3. This is where I'm getting this. It says, when I kept silent. This is the experience of a man living with guilt. It's the experience of not being forgiven. It's the feeling of shame. It's the feeling of dread that if you were to be found out for what you've, you've done, everything you got would be taken away from you. What's the big thing that's stopping David from experiencing the blessed life? You could say that it's his sin, but I want to suggest it's not his sin that's stopping him, but it's actually what he's choosing to do with his sin. David, in his silence, is expressing the pain of living in unconfessed sin. Have you ever had an experience like this? Similar relationship thing, maybe spouse, friend. I don't know if you've ever done this, but maybe you've told a lie, something you, know, you didn't think that was that bad. You're trying to get out of like a sticky situation. Um, but then it's turned out to be something bigger than you first thought it would be. Maybe you're protecting something like, you know, your reputation, your possessions, you know, your addictions, your comforts, something, something you're protecting. 
Um, and then as it goes on, and the truth still hasn't come out, you can feel this same angst as David. You can feel like your bones are wasting away. You feel like your strength is sapped. You're groaning all day long. You know the pain that will bring when your sin's exposed, but you're just hoping to delay it as long as possible in hope that it just goes away. How's the state of your relationship with this person during the time, this time? Like, can you look them in the eye? Can you go to sleep at night? When sin is unconfessed in any relationship, that relationship gets disrupted. You can't truly have peace. You can't have rest. And that's the same with our relationship with God. When we live in unconfessed sin before him, our relationship becomes disrupted. Notice who David's um, silent towards in verse 4. It says, Your hand was heavy on me. I want to suggest that it's not his friends or family that he's, you know, unconfessed sin before, but it's actually God. It's God that he's remaining silent towards. And I think this is a helpful thing to distinguish. Think about this with me. Do you think, um, when we think of our sin being disruptive, oh wait, sorry, when do you experience deeper remorse? Is it when your sin is exposed in front of maybe your friends or your family or when it's exposed before God? Like, I think it's possible to feel sorry about sin because of the worldly inconvenience that's caused you, but not actually sorry to God. If there were no worldly repercussions for your sin, maybe it was something that the world endorsed, like greed or something like that, would you feel as strongly against it? Would you fight it? Our concern needs to be like David. Not what the world thinks, but what God does. We need to realise that when we sin, it's actually first and foremost to God. David says in Psalm 51, Against you, you only have I sinned. This psalm reveals something we need to understand, that our unconfessed sin disrupts our relationship with God. The sin that we continue in it stops us from experiencing the blessed life that he's talking about. You might be like, Darcy, like, aren't my sins forgiven? Isn't this like, haven't, isn't my salvation secure in Jesus? And I think that's a really good reflex. So I want to press in to this question. What actually happens when a Christian sins? It's worth, worth considering. I think there's two things. First one is, our legal status before God is unchanged. There's an overwhelming evidence throughout the scriptures that our salvation isn't achieved by our own merits, but it's the free gift of grace by God. Romans 8.1 says, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Um, but one of the most helpful ways that I understand it is from 1 John 2.1, and I think this is going to come up on the screen. It says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Notice that God doesn't want us to keep sinning. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. An advocate 
is someone that stands up and makes a case for someone on their behalf and saying that Jesus is our advocate. But when Jesus gets up and advocates on our behalf, he's not saying that we're less guilty than we are. He's like, yes, they are guilty. But then he points to his cross and he's like, it is finished. I've paid for their sins. Jesus is our eternal advocate. Hebrews says that his sacrifice has been made once for all time. Our salvation is secure when Jesus is our advocate. But here's the second thing that happens when a Christian sins, and it's the thing I brought up earlier. It's that sin disrupts our relationship with God. The pain that David expresses here, three and four, it's, it's an example of the serious disruption that happens when we're living in unconfessed sin before God. Ephesians 4.30 says that when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit, that God actually grieves in our sin. But even in his grief, God does not withdraw. His invitation for forgiveness and relationship still stands. He's not going anywhere. He knows what he signed up for. But I want to suggest that when we sin, we're the ones walking away from that relationship. We're the ones walking away from our advocate. We're the ones causing that disruption. A few weeks back in our Draw Near series, Tim was showing us how um, under the original laws in the Old Testament that um, we actually had to, it meant that we had to stay away from God. Like for us to draw near to God, it required like blood and sacrifice. And that through Jesus, we could actually draw near with confidence because our sins had been paid for. But I want to suggest, even though God's position of stay away has changed to draw near, that we still choose to stay away because of our sin, even though he's made a way that we can come close to him. And I think, there's, um, I think we stay away usually because of two reasons. And I want you to think about whether or not you fall into these two categories. The first one's this. We stay away from God because we love our sin more than him. Or we stay away from God because we're ashamed of our sin. And I think the answer to both is to repent. It's repentance. It means stopping what you're doing and walking the other way. It means stop in your sin and walk towards Jesus. Check out how this verse works in this next section. Verse 5 says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Check out what David does here. He confesses his sin to God, and he's instantly forgiven. There's no delay. There's no like, oh, David, you know what, I'm going to make you work for it this time. It's instantaneous. And this is the offer for us as well. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28, we looked at this verse the other week. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Guys, the reason the burden is light 
is because he's done the hard work on the cross. Like when he died on that cross, he took your place for your sins. That's why you can be sure of forgiveness. You just point to the cross. If you've come here tonight needing no reminder whatsoever that you're a sinner, you've been staying away because you're ashamed of your sin, know that in Jesus there's genuine forgiveness for what you've done. We have the evidence of the cross. Keep pointing to the cross. The ramifications of sin may be still large in your life. They're causing you pain. The pain of repentance, turning back and knowing what it is to follow him, that could be hard. But you can truly have forgiveness because what Christ has achieved on the cross. And so this is what you need to take away from this. Confessing sin restores the enjoyment of God's blessing. You might have been groaning under the weight of unconfessed sin for years, but in a space of a single verse, you can be forgiven. One act of true confession is all that's required. 1 John verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Our response to sin, it's to expose it and to let it go. So I want to run you through three things that you could be doing on a daily basis. First thing, expose it. To expose your sin is to bring it before God. Let his light shine upon it and show it for what it is. Whether it's today or at the end of time, your sin will be exposed. You have the choice to do that under the offer of God's forgiveness now or under his judgment at the end of time. Second duty, just let go. This is what he says to us. Let go of your sin. Open up your hands, release your grip, and let me deal with your sin. As I've been trying to apply this to my own life, I've been praying um, and I've been bringing my sins before him, and I sit there with my sin in mind, my hands in a tight-fisted grip, as if I'm holding on to that, and then I ask God for forgiveness, and I release my grip, and I open my palms up to him. And I know that he's taken away my sin because of the cross. I encourage you to do something like that. Let go of your tight-fisted grip. Open your palms before him. Third thing you can be doing is walking Walk towards him. Walking towards him means walking away from sin. It's walking towards a relationship. It's seeking that relationship. It's seeking obedience. And know this, there's nothing that God delights in more than when we lay our sins at his feet and we walk towards him. To walk towards him under the freedom of forgiveness that's the blessed life. But I want to change gears a bit because there's a bit of a warning here at the end of verse 9. Have a look there. I think it's a warning to those of us that aren't responding rightly to our sin. I'll read it. It says this. Do not be like the horse or the mule which has no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. David's warning is this, don't be a donkey, don't be an ass, don't be too proud to admit your failure, 
Don't willingly stay away from him. Don't make your sin out to be less than what it is. Don't be okay with your sin. That's his warning for us here. I think it's a warning specifically for the continued unrepentant sinner. That's when sin becomes a long-term pattern of disobedience because of our inability to confess it and rid ourselves of it. I don't think many of us actually start out intending to be willfully stubborn, but I think after, over time when we start to, um, we don't fight sin, we start to justify it. We start giving it space in our life. And our love, it slowly becomes greater for it. And our love for God and his way, it just becomes less and less clear. There's this um, old bloke, Puritan writer, his name's John Owen, he says, Sin is never less quiet and inactive than when it seems quiet and inactive. When the waters of sin appear to be calm, that's usually because they are only very deep. Man, that's a, that's a sobering warning for those that think they have no sin to repent of. My concern for the continued unrepentant sinner is that they might have fallen away from God. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Colossians 1.23 says that reconciliation is on offer, forgiveness, if we remain in the faith. It's a common Christian myth that we have forgiveness in Christ regardless of what the rest of our lives look like. That's not what the Bible teaches. 1 John 2.4 says, Whoever says, I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth's not in that person. The warning is for those that claim to know God and love him and be recipients of his grace and forgiveness, but really sin reigns in their life. I think our danger is when we treat God's forgiveness like insurance. Like, have you ever taken out insurance? I read that... Um, Barefoot Investor book, and his thing with insurance is like, don't insure yourself against stuff that's not going to, that will devastate your life. Don't insure yourself against things that won't devastate your life. And so like the, the phone insurance, the extras cover, he's like, don't worry about that. Mainly just focus your house. Like if you lose your house, that's going to be hard. That'll bring devastation, right? And car, that's his other recommendation. And I think we think of God's forgiveness like that because it would be massively devastating if we missed out on it. But here's the problem if we only have a view of his forgiveness like insurance, if we're not seeking relationship, if we're just, you know, sticking it in the back pocket like a get-out-of-jail-free card, insurance only makes us cherish the thing that we have less. Like, think about phone insurance, right? You drop your phone, you crack it, you might be a bit devoured, like, it's a bit inconvenient, you have to get a new phone, but um, you, know, you know you can just get another one. Insurance, it doesn't let you feel the pain of the errors. Insurance doesn't make you value the blessing of what you have right in front of you. I don't think insurance makes you, it doesn't cultivate a re- repentant heart. We've got to value what we have right in front of us, which is Jesus Christ, our King our Saviour, our Lord. When we become apathetic to God's grace, we make excuses for continued sin. 
Have you ever heard that, si- that saying, um, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission? Do we take that approach with the Father? Because I want to suggest that's the wrong kind of heart. This is the stubborn heart that David warns us against here. It's the sinful, deceiving heart that says that we can stay away from God in our sin and we'll be okay. Friends, be aware of unrepentant sin in your own life. This could be that pride that you're holding on to, the greed that's justified your addiction to wealth, the bitterness that you might be holding against a brother or sister. It could be that secret that you're holding on to, hoping it will never get exposed. Notice in yourself what you're holding on to, what you might be loving more than God, what's keeping you away from him, what's become so precious to you that you can't let it go. I can't help but mention um, Tolkien's famous Lord of the Rings character, Gollum, right? So Gollum, he used to be known as Smeagol, right? It was this happy little hobbit, um, and he was fishing with his mate one day, and his mate found this gold ring. Um, You might know the story. Um, He killed his friend for it. He really wanted it, right? And he cultivated this fascination with the ring, and he withdrew into a cave. Um, But the ring, it had these special powers. It had the spirit of the dark Lord Sauron, and it twisted his mind and his body, and it it prolonged his life way longer than it should have. He used to refer to this ring as his precious. Like it was all, like it defined who he was. But in, um, there's a moment in the story actually where he's without the ring and he sees this future of a better life where he can live under a new master, which is Frodo, his friend. He even succeeds at this for a while. He fights off Gollum. But in the final act, His love for the ring is too strong. He finally gets the precious back, his ring. He bites it off Frodo's hand at this fight at the top of Mount Doom. And he's there, just got got the ring, like absolutely stoked on life. And then Frodo blindsides him and tackles him into the lava of Mount Doom. And as he's falling, I've actually got a photo of this. As he's falling, he's staring into the ring, just like totally stoked with what he's got. And, like, you can see behind that lava what he's falling into. And then the next slide, he actually gets the ring and draws it into his chest. He's so content in what he has. But then he hits the lava and he realises what's happened, that he and the ring perishes. Guys, this is pretty hectic, but this could be us in our sin. When we stop confessing it, When we stop repenting of it, we become like Gollum, transfixed on this pleasure of sin, content in our satisfaction, unable to let it go. And little are we aware, we're fallen to our death. John Owen, that bloke I was saying before, he says this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Friends, we need to cherish the gift of forgiveness that we have in Christ. This means saying, no to sin and yes to Jesus. Do not underestimate the deceitfulness of sin and its ability to consume your heart. Expose it. Let his light shine upon it. Let go of your tight-fisted grip and confess it before him because you will be forgiven. Notice how this psalm ends. Verse 10 and 11. I'll read it for you. It says, Many are the woes of the wicked. 
but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. Guys, notice what repentance restores us to. It's that we can rejoice in the Lord, that we can enjoy him. You can truly have the blessed life today when you bring your sins and lay them at the feet of Jesus and you can enjoy the peace that comes with a restored relationship with him. I'm going to pray. Um, Heavenly Father, Lord, we at many times you know, feel this weight of how um, we love our sin more than you, Lord. Um, yeah, Lord, help us to see how you are so much better. Help us to hate that and love you um, and bring these things before you. Lord, as we, you know, let go of our sin and open up our palms before you, help us realise the forgiveness that we have in you. Help us to enjoy the blessed life. Help us to have joy in you knowing that what you've done through Jesus, Lord. Uh, our hearts are weak, um, but you give us rest, Lord. And please, yeah, um, forgive us our sin and help us to um, enjoy the relationship that comes with you. Amen.